the stated goals with this episode was to flesh out the Jem'Hadar more, which I'm with, and to make them less relatable and basically more awful. Before I do anything else, especially for those of you who are watching this show alongside me or recently, what do you think? Did they succeed? Did they fail? Like, what were your opinions of the Jem'Hadar after this? The reason I ask that right off the bat is because I think they failed in their stated task. The Jem'Hadar are horrible. No, no, I think actually the Jem'Hadar were sufficiently fleshed out to be a more interesting race. In fact, most of the aspects of their, I hesitate to use this word, culture that we see in this episode make perfect sense given how the Jem'Hadar are and function. And it made them more, I don't want to call it relatable, I suppose understandable is actually the word I want to use here. Also, this episode, well, let's talk about this in order. So they get back and Deep Space Nine is wrecked. I gotta be honest, first time I saw that, my thinking was, wait, are they in a training simulation? Or is this like an alternate situation or alternate parallel universe? No, no, oh, oh God. That actually is Deep Space Nine and it actually did just get you know, blown to hell. Don't worry, they'll have it fixed by the next episode. It was just funny that they were willing to show this level of devastation from a single Jem'Hadar strike squad, which was not operating from a, from a ship. Now, that part chilled me a lot. Because that is what the Jem'Hadar are really capable of doing. They have such a level of precision and focus on the mission, regardless of all other objectives, including their own safety and survival, and that's something shown repeatedly throughout this episode, that they can be ridiculously effective if chosen to do so. So, I find it fully believable that a squad of Jim Hadar can beam aboard, rush right to the location, bomb, take what they need, and get out. Just bam, 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 just like that. That is very Jim Hadar and very terrifying. It was a nice way to emphasize the kind of threat the Dominion posed. Because remember, there are three layers to the threat of the Dominion. And really, you could express it in their three major races. The Founders can infiltrate, the Vorta know how to play at politics, and the Jem'Hadar are incredibly dangerous from a military perspective. So, yeah. Uh, there's this nice bit where they're fleeing, fleeing, they're chasing after the Jem'Hadar ship, and Worf makes a comment that leaving the, uh, leaving the Defiant stationed at Deep Space Nine is a mistake. Now, I myself have said multiple times how weird it is how casual they are about just taking the Defiant and leaving and going off and doing rather jaunts. But that's mostly because each of those jaunts is towards something that's not really high priority, right? I actually quite dis I agree with Worf on this. A siege mentality is kind of a losing mentality to begin with. There's a reason the concept of mobile defense exists, after all. And in fact, it's something that I had to learn. It was actually one of the first tactical lessons I learned when I first started studying and getting interested in strategy and tactics. Now, granted, I'm an amateur idiot who is an armchair commander who knows nothing about strategy and tactics, but even I know that a ship that can move around and respond is more useful than a turret that can't. So I get Worf's comment, but I do like how he acknowledges O'Brien's point. Now, then they meet... Wayoon, and I can't help but grin, because it's Wayoon. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I am obviously an absolutely gargantuan Jeffrey Combs fan. He's one of my favorite actors, and voice actors for that matter, and I love him every time I see him. Like, I, I can't think of a single role I've ever not liked Jeffrey Combs, and he, he's amazing. 
Um, so that being stated, <laughs> getting that out of the way, I'd love to be able to work with them on something someday. Wouldn't that be awesome to like, you know, be able to work with some actors you really appreciate or are inspired by or whatever? Anyways, what do you guys think of Wayun? Before I go anywhere else, what do you think of Wayun and Jeffrey Combs' presentation as him? I actually have more to say about him later, but I just wanted to ask right up front. As ever, I like to ask you guys' opinions before I give my own. So, uh, Wayun shows up along with the Metaclon, who is played by Clarence Williams III, who is actually really awesome, does an excellent portrayal of the Jem'Hadar. I think some of the strength of the Jem'Hadar as a race comes on the excellent guest stars they get. This gentleman was actually a friend of LeVar Burton, who directed this episode. And Burton, of course, does a phenomenal job, as he always does. Apparently the logistics for this episode were a nightmare, and I could see it. An outdoor shoot with Jem'Hadar, that's already a huge problem, because Jem'Hadar has tons of makeup, and outdoor shoots are automatically more difficult and dangerous to do. So, yeah, no, I'm totally with him on that. But anyways... So, he does a great job with the Metaclon. They come in and they discuss, all right, here's the problem. We're in a unique situation because there's some rogue Jim Hadar. They're over there, and they have a, uh, they have an Iconian gateway. Now, for the longest time, this was the second usage of the Iconians in this show. Of two, they were back in Contagion and they were here. Since then, that, that number has been expanded to five, although the other three are only mentions. Funnily enough, I think some people commented on this when I was uh, discussing Contagion, which we've already long since covered, but at the time, I hadn't actually gotten into Discovery yet. Twice in Discovery, the Iconians are mentioned, uh, once with regards to a map, and another, they're just on a map in the background. In the episodes, and I wrote them down, Choose Your Pain and Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Funnily enough, I actually did forget, though, that in Inside Man over in Voyager, Tom actually mentions the Iconians briefly. That brings us up to a grand total of five total references to the Iconians across the entire franchise, to date, of course. I find that very interesting, considering, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but all I'm going to say is Star Trek Online. And I don't know about you guys, but the idea of the Iconians always fascinated me. Because it's so understandable why a group like the Iconians would be able to have a massive, sprawling empire with such technology. Transporters are already an enormously useful tool. I've talked about this many times. In fact, I complain because Star Trek tends to misuse the overwhelming strength of what the transporters really are. However, in addition to the, the strength of the transporter, imagine a transporter that's just super long range. They see Earth from this one that's here. Twice, actually, or is it three times? I know they show Paris and they show Starfleet Headquarters, is the two I'm aware of. That's insane! So, ridiculously long-range, and there's nothing that is known to exist that can block it. There's no receiving a, a transporter signal. No, it's just, and they're there. So, unblockable, undetectable, virtually infinite range. We're talking light years of range. That is, that's insane the amount of advantage that would add to anyone. And it's interesting to me that they agree without hesitation that destroying this, this facility, destroying this portal, is without question the correct choice. And they even decide that on the fly. I find myself wondering how many people at Starfleet privately disagreed with Cisco's decision to agree to destroy this thing. Anyways, so this is our dilemma. And then he's like, okay, hang on. Why not just send a founder? They're programmed to follow the founders. And we know this is true. 
I mean, there's extents of that in the past that we've already covered, but we'll see more of that in the future as well. So why not just do that? And then Wayun is just like, well, the, uh, the, the, the reliance on the founders is overstated. <laughs> and I love the way he says it. He's such a great actor. I love the way he says it. Because he's kind of saying what I would like to call a duh. Of course it's overstated. The white exists. Think about it. Why would they need the white if they were totally programmed to be totally loyal? Deviants can exist and, well, let's be honest, there's a degree of droid effect that can take place with these people. They are sufficiently advanced in order to develop the kind of sentience and sapience necessary to break from programming. Right? It's not quite droid effect, but it's certainly leaning in that direction. It's also probably one of the reasons why most Jem'Hadar are, are deliberately expended so that they do not uh, develop long enough and, and far enough in order to really be such a problem. This is actually mentioned in the episode as well with the fact, uh, the wonderful discussion between, I don't know what his name was, um, Varakara maybe? I've got a list of the Jem'Hadar here. And uh, Dax, as they're discussing, you know, I'm, I'm eight and most people never live to be 15. And Dax is saying, yeah, I'm 300. What I love is... So much of that conversation is surprisingly human, even though none of the people involved in that scene are human. But what I mean by that, of course, I don't mean human the race, I mean human the concept. Um, very believable, grounded, down-to-earth. These things that we usually mean when we say the word human when it comes to a descriptor. Because he is observing her because well, she's going to be on his combat team. So he needs to know how she works to be able to anticipate. Perfectly logical. The more you can anticipate what your comrade's going to do, the more effective cooperation in teamwork you have. That's extremely logical. That's true for people. Never mind Jim Hadar. So that makes sense. And then she is, of course, very bothered by this because she's just trying to get some work done. And, you know. and so she tries to strike up a conversation with him because she likes to learn through linguistics. He gives fairly blunt reactions, but he never pushes her away. He just responds bluntly. Because that's the Jem'Hadar way. The Jem'Hadar aren't actually antisocial so much as they are asocial. In other words, it just doesn't really occur to them to do most of the socializing things that we have as a normal existence. And that makes sense. Because we developed for years and years through social interaction. A Jem'Hadar can get up and be ready to fight in, what was it, three days? They don't need social interactions as part of their genetic makeup. At least, not to fight. And since the only thing they're really used for is fighting, you can understand that. To be 100% blunt, I actually think the Jem'Hadar could develop into, let's call it what it is, a real culture, a real people, if they were allowed to, if they were not expended. We don't even know what the lifespan is of a Jem'Hadar. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it's artificially short, specifically as another method of control. I have no idea, though. Either way, <clears throat> so she has this wonderful scene... And the best part is when she admits, I stopped counting over 300, he just gets this brief moment of, oh my goodness. Like he is just legitimately shocked at the idea of any non-founder being that old, living to that age. And you don't look it, <laughs> you know, just trying to recoup with something there. There's also a wonderful bit where they're doing these training missions together. And it's like, all right, we've got to find our way through. Go, go, you know. And... We have to find the third guard. Ah, you didn't find the third guard. Where was it? You might as well tell us. There was no third guard. What? Battle is not predictable. Very true. And then he gives some arguments, which, from a purely military, 
victory, you know, in other words, obtaining the objective perspective are absolutely correct. You should have dropped the, you should have set up the bomb, and then you should have stayed to defend it. That is true, assuming you do not value the lives of your units, which makes sense because the Jem'Hadar don't. Why would they? They are expendable. They are a currency to be utilized, and a currency is useless by definition if it is not spent and obtained, actually. That, that's the point of currency, the cycle, right? That's why I use that analogy very specifically, because that is exactly how the Jem'Hadar are viewed. They are currency to be obtained and then spent. And the, it, it's funny, because then there's this whole bit... Where they all, they're talking about this, you know, the, the soldier unafraid to die. And Wei-Yun makes the comment, you know, there's something to be said for soldiers who are unafraid to die. And Wei-Yun has a point, as we saw back on Deep Space Nine at the beginning of the episode. Soldiers who are unafraid to die, soldiers who are expendable, can be used in ways that soldiers who are not can't. And yet, at the same time, a soldier who is, who is desirous to live will push a lot farther and a lot harder than one who isn't. And... A soldier who lives will be able to develop in a way that a soldier who doesn't can't, by obvious definition. In other words, the Jem'Hadar, for all their strengths and powers, are fairly uniform overall. They're strong, they've got the camo, and they've got pretty decent gun shoot shooting abilities. Okay. But the thing is, they are the Zerglings. And I say specifically Zerglings, the, the base tier stuff. You can make tons of them, and they're super cheap and they're super easy, but really... Their only real use is to be used as fodder or in enormous numbers. By contrast, a much smaller unit of much better units could withstand, and this will show throughout the course of the series, can withstand a Jem'Hadar assault, especially if they know they're coming. Because, to, to put this into RPG terms, most Jem'Hadar are level 1. Some may be developed to level 2 or 3. Now, they have bonuses that help offset that, but they are low level because they basically cannot develop further. Whereas most of the military personnel in Starfleet, and I say specifically military, so those who have seen combat, have, are significantly higher level because of the amount of experience they have and the amount of actions and, and coordination and teamwork and de desire to live and all that other stuff that they go through. Make sense? I love this presentation of the two sides of this, the specialized versus the throng. And I like how, as weird as this may sound, the episode goes out of its way to show that both sides have a point. I mean, you've got to be honest. I imagine most nations, if they were just given the option, if someone just walked up to them and was like, hey, this is a Jem'Hadar, and here's the technology and resources to build them. Here's the white that'll control them. Here's the programming that'll make them loyal to you. I actually have a feeling most nations would go in on that deal. I mean, I hate to say that because that is a horrible, cynical thing to say because you're basically... Well, it's, it's the measure of a man thing all over again, isn't it? You are making people to be expendable people. And there is something really horrible about expendable people. But at the same time, it's easy to see the logic there. Well, if we have to have a military, we want to smell wicked the expendable kind, right? That way we don't have to deal with any of the problems of losing real people. And you see how both sides of this kind of get distended once you really start zooming the camera out and thinking of this at a national level. On the one hand, of course, yes, God, I have tons of units and I can make them all the time quickly. It would be like playing an RTS in real life. You know, building units in three days? <laughs> but at the same time, you could see how many moral boundaries that crosses on so many different levels. And, of course, that gets across the point of the Dominion. 
and it once again shows how the Dominion is in total contrast to the, the complete inverse of the Federation. The Federation, for all its flaws, does value the individual. The Dominion does not. Anywho, <clears throat> so uh, there's this wonderful bit where they're just kind of chatting, and Odo says, I envy them, and they're like, huh? Oh, their, their lack of needing to sleep. I am totally with them on that. When I finally got rid of my need to sleep years ago, I was finally able to... No, okay, I'm just kidding. I would love to not have to sleep. That would, that's like one of the first superpowers I'd pick if I had to pick like a mundane utility superpower. No longer needing sleep. Done. Just let me work. I have so much to do. Um, so yeah, then the, the fight starts. And there's this wonderful bit where the second is uh, disciplined. Now, I hate to reiterate this point, but that's what the episode is doing. Once again, we see how the point of, how, of the difference in how the Jem'Hadar versus you know, the Federation works is being showcased. Because the Jem'Hadar are disposable. So even though he was the second, and even though he cared about him, and even though there was a connection there, and even though he was a good second, he's disposable. How do you maintain discipline in a society in which people only really exist to kill, and nothing else, and can be in a replacement for you can be bred in days. Well, killing's one of the only things that can be done at that point. I'm going to take away your white rations is basically just another form of torture slash killing. Pain is something they barely even feel past the ability. You know, so what do you do to them? Confining Worf to quarters probably doesn't sound like a lot, but actually that's that's a pretty strict punishment under the circumstances. Uh, I say that because he didn't do anything particularly wrong, and thus, as a consequence, doing something, you know, punishing him even worse wasn't really called for. There is worse punishments, of course, even if you, you don't get escalate to the point of killing or imprisonment. But I, 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 I digress. The one thing I wanted to mention, though, there's this good bit where Worf mentions, what's the point of battle if you don't get anything out of it? And this is the final insight into Jem'Hadar mindset, because for them, the means are the ends, this was actually shown before, too, and will be shown again in the future. The Jem'Hadar fight because that's what they enjoy doing. So allowing them to go fight is basically pleasing them. Whereas the vast majority of other species, and indeed in real life concept people, they, they fight to accomplish something. It is the means, not the ends. And this showcasing is a wonderful way to put it. Also some light flirting between Worf and Dax. Those two are kind of drifting closer together. I forget when that becomes a thing, but it's coming. You all know it's coming. I'm, that's not even a spoiler. <laughs> They've been hinting at that so hard. So, looking at my notes here, I do love, love the Weyun and Odo scene. First of all, it's not the... I'm just going to go ahead and... This is kind of a spoiler. This is not the last time we will see these two together. Now, I know that is kind of a spoiler, because I'm spoiling that Wayun will be back. I think that's an acceptable spoiler to say, because Wayun will be back, yes! Uh, but anyways, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Don't worry. But I love the scene. The two have great chemistry together. And Wayun perfectly plays the simpering, you know, I, I am at yours to command, I am beneath you in all ways, and yet at the same time willing to look up to you and talk to you to try and manipulate or coerce you. Whereas Odo is the person who wants nothing to do with this smiling toady, and yet at the same time feels what could be best described as pity for him. It's a great dynamic, and we'll see more of that in the future, thankfully. But it's also worth noting that this is officially the scene where 
the thing was introduced to Odo that'll coming up be coming up in just a few episodes now, actually. I'll refer to it there as well, because I'm trying to avoid specific spoilers. So, yeah, I know, hypocrite, whatever. Point being, I just wanted to point out that this is the official moment when that happened. I wonder if Wayun knew. So, <laughs> there's a really good scene where O'Brien comes in and offers the message to Keiko to Dax. And Dax mentions, you know, this is ridiculous. Why do you do that? And it's a very human, very wonderful scene. O'Brien mentions that this is the 11th one of these messages he's recorded since he and Keiko got married, roughly two times a year. I know I do the same thing. Um, I don't want to get into too much personal stuff, but a family member of mine uh, actually went off to combat duty once and basically didn't really get a chance to say goodbye. And you could probably already tell, based on the way this conversation's going, that family member did not come home. And something about that really resonated with me. So, as a consequence, it's, it's just always been kind of the mindset, if I ever was to go into a circumstance like that, I'd make a point of saying goodbye, because you never know, right? And I'm, So I'm with O'Brien on that, and it's a wonderful scene. And my favorite part is towards the end, Dax says, I'll put it with the one to my mother. And he's like, what, you do those two? And her response is so simple. Doesn't everyone? So, they go down, um, and <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's this great bit, Wayun is such a wonderful actor, especially a background actor. There's this wonderful bit where the Jem'Hadar are like, we go, wait, we must do the speech, we are dead. And Wayun just in the background just kind of goes, it's, it's actually probably more subtle than the motion I just made. It's just this tiny little thing, I love it. Anyways, we go to reclaim our lives, victory is life. And then O'Brien comes up and says, I am a Miles O'Brien, and I would very much like to keep living. <laughs> oh, man, let's go. I love it. I love it. So then they go, and then the fight happens. It was apparently cut by 32 seconds. Apparently a lot of deaths happened in those 32 seconds. Like, quite a few Jem'Hadar were cut down in those 32 seconds that were chopped. Um, it's a bit of a shame. I honestly feel that the fight thing is... Uh, one of the weaker parts of the episode. And that's a damn shame, because that's no fault of the episode per se. But several people die on our side, and it just kind of brushes over it, because of course it is their red shirts, and I've already given my problem with the red shirt concept. And quite a few Jem'Hadar die, and it's kind of hard to tell who dies which and where. I mean, we recognize three of the Jem'Hadar, because those are the main ones. The guy played by Brian Thompson, who's the second who died earlier, so he's not involved in this, although it's always nice to see Brian Thompson again. I really like him, legitimately. Uh, we got Varak Kara, played by Scott Haven, and then we got Ometaclon, and that's basically it as far as the Jem'Hadar that have been given a voice. So we don't have a lot of investment, it's just slicing through the Zerglings. Maybe that's the point, I don't know. We do get to see the Iconian Gateway briefly, like I mentioned, you know, Earth, Paris, blah, blah, blah. They win, they blow it up, and then they shoot Wayun. <gasps> now... <laughs> I'm amazed that they're allowed to get across that. It, the implication is that the Vorta challenged the natural order. The Jem'Hadar are loyal. Challenging that loyalty is punishable by death, because after all, in Jem'Hadar society, everything is punishable by death. What else is there? So that actually makes sense and lines up neatly with what we know about the Jem'Hadar. Funny thing, though. Everyone 
at least in var- as far as the creators and producers and actors, loved Jeffrey Combs as Wayun. They loved him so much, they invented a method for Wayun to come back. Now, I'll actually be talking about that a little bit more when Wayun comes back. But I just find that amusing. And admittedly, that is one of the advantages, one of the strongest advantages, I would say, of backloaded storytelling, which, as I've been saying many times, is what Deep Space Nine does. If you have backloaded storytelling, like, for example, if this was front-loaded, they'd effectively have to retcon things to have Wayun come back, because all of this would have been designed in advance. But with backloaded, well, they haven't really designed the Vorta as a species yet. In fact, to be completely blunt, as of this moment, we still know basically nothing about the Vorta. We'll actually be talking about the Vorta more in the future, as that comes up uh, in, I want to say, Season 6, actually, is when the Vorta really get discussed as a species, like at the beginning of Season 6. I'm not sure the specifics, but I know that comes up there. So we don't really know anything about the Vorta. So the idea of William coming back, well, okay. Very good episode. Hope you guys enjoyed. I'll see you next time.